when you, uh, you think about a guy like Sam, there are people on the other end of the spectrum that they, they kind of have this question. And it's a question that I think every generation, everybody in every generation, it doesn't mat- matter what the age grouping is, uh, it doesn't matter the nationality or where you live, and it doesn't matter about your gender. We all kind of come along and we ask one really important question of life. And it's, what's my purpose in life? I've had people come into my office and ask me that a lot. Why did God put me on this planet? What am I here for? What am I supposed to be? What should I do with my life? What are my goals and my ambitions, my dreams and my future? And these questions in of themselves, they're good. But if you take a look at the questions really deeply, they're really very self-focused, aren't they? We're asking about me. What about me? Me, me, me. And, and it, it's not bad that we have that question in our mind, but it's really bad if we never discover what our life purpose is. You come to the end of life and you don't know why you were here, why God created you, why he put you here. Now, I really get it that when young people are asking those questions of themselves because they're looking to the future, they're looking for what might lie ahead of them. They're wondering, why did God put me here? Why did God put me in the family that I'm in? Why did God put me on the continent and in the state or wherever they're at? They're asking those questions and they're good questions to pursue for young people. And I get it when, when there are people who are not walking with Christ. They're not in faith. And they're asking those questions because they have no clue really about who God is and how much God loves them. But I'm a little bit baffled when I hear people who have been Christians for quite a while and they're still asking that question. When they're still asking, what am I, what am I here for? What is it that I want? And if you just take a little bit of time and you sit down with people, in, particularly in faith community, you'll discover why they seem to be at lost when it comes to knowing their place on this planet, what it is that they're trying to accomplish in life. And the thing that we find out when we listen to their words is they just start every conversation with the word me or I. What am I here for? What about me? And, and even people who are in ministry kind of miss the mark. I had a conversation with a young guy, not from here, who was, who was, he just really knew God was calling him to step in and minister to somebody's life in a very unique way. And he stepped in and he was telling me about it. He says, I heard God just kind of prodding me to go. And so I went over and I met with this, this person and we had this conversation and it was so great because we worked things out and I was just doing all that God called me to do and, and I was just thrilled and people would be really proud of me. And after the conversation, I was thinking to myself, well, what about the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life to be obedient to Jesus, to do what Jesus has called you to do and at the end of the thing, you say, and glory to God, he took care of it. That just left me kind of going like, wow, you kind of missed that mark there, buddy. And, and the problem is, is that those kinds of situations where we have those kind of people that are involved in ministry in the church, they, they, they 
starting with themselves in the ministry and they're building on it. And don't get me wrong, God can do something through a person like that. A broken clock is right twice a day. For your digital people, you don't get that one. If you buy one of these right here, so you have to be like older than 40 to know what this is. God can use that. God can take a person who is self-absorbed and self-focused and still use it for his glory. But the problem is, is that there will come a point in that ministry when the whole thing starts to unravel, everything starts to fall apart. There's hard things that are happening and it's difficult to deal with. And all of a sudden they're just going like, I feel abandoned by God and discouragement sets into their life. And they're going like, oh man. And the next thing you know, that ministry has folded in on itself and nothing is happening with it. And the problem comes is that the person that was involved in that ministry starts the whole process all over again. What ministry should I be doing now? Why did God put me here if it wasn't for that? How am I to get people to be really engaged in what I'm doing and to stay the long course and hang in there with me? They start the whole process all over again. And here's why this happens. And it happens far too often in churches in the lives of Christ followers. It comes down to the starting point. It's where you start, what you start with that makes a difference. And if the, for, for us who are Christ followers, that point has to be Jesus. You start with Jesus. It's not about my ministry. It's not about my church. This is not my church. I attend this church with you. But this church belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. I don't want it. Because as soon as I take over, then, then I've moved the starting point to myself. And if, if Jesus is where everything starts, there is no room for self-glorification. But the problem is we've grown accustomed to self-glorification because you've been told it or you've been taught it or you've read it in some kind of a book that says, if you consider your dreams, clarify your values, set some goals, figure out what you're good at, aim high, be disciplined, believe you can achieve your goals, involve others, and most importantly, never give up, you will be successful and find your life's purpose. Woohoo! Now, don't get me wrong. You can set your goals and you can achieve your goals and you can be very successful according to the world. But you need to understand this, that, that being successful and fulfilling your life's purpose are two things entirely different from one another. They can be mended together when God's in the middle of it when you start on God. But it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. And there are a lot of successful people who find their success in life to be unfulfilling, dissatisfying, because they cannot connect their success in their business or their life with their life purpose. So they end up coming to this place where they're going to speculate about what my purpose, why I'm here on this planet. They don't really know, so they speculate. They take a good guess at it. And what they're doing is basically walking around uh, aimlessly searching for the elusive life purpose. You know, there's good news in all this. And I, I know you're just waiting for that shoe to drop. And it's that God has not left us to figure out our life purpose on our own. He, he has come to us and said, look, 
you don't have to speculate what it is. Open up this thing. Maybe that's the sermon I'm supposed to be preaching. I can't remember. (laughs) Open up my book. Take a look at it. Ask me and I will help you understand. God's not left us in the dark to wonder or guess what life is all about for us. He has clearly revealed his purpose for our lives through his word, the Bible. It's our owner's manual explaining why we are alive, how life works, what we're supposed to avoid, what to expect in the future. Like Sam. He wasn't afraid of the future because he knew what was going to happen when he died. He would really become alive. So it all starts with God, and he's just not the starting point of our lives either. If we just think, well, I'm just going to start with God and then just go my merry little way, you need to understand that God is also the source and sustainer of your life. He's the one that brought you into this world, and he's the one that's going to take you out. The Bible tells us that our days are numbered, and when when you hit that number, you're going. So you better be ready to go. To discover God's purpose for your life, you will have to start your journey with God in his word and disregard pop psychology, successful motivation speeches, and inspirational stories because those things are not going to help you discover your life's purpose. Paul wrote a letter to the Ephesians. And he said what I just said in about five minutes. He says in about 30 seconds. And it may even be better than what, well, it was better than what I said. So let me read to you Ephesians 1, 11, and 12. And I'm reading it out of the message. It says, It is in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Long before we first heard of Christ and got our hopes up, he had his eyes on us. He designed his designs on us for glorious living. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Jesus already determined what that is. Now what happens a lot of times for us is that we just kind of get a little bit... I don't know how else to soft sell this, so I'm just going to say it. Lazy. We, we want to open, it, open up our Bible and we take it and we, we close it up and, and then we, we open it up and we do this and we point here. And, you know, hope we're going to find our life's purpose. And, uh, you know, you read it, you go like, I'm supposed to go hang myself? That's really not God's life purpose for you. I can tell you that. So when we come to this whole thing about 1 Corinthians, and we're talking about 1 Corinthians, Paul's seeking, speaking to this very issue in the Corinthian church. For the last three chapters that we've been studying together, we've been looking at how Paul is dealing with the idols that were a part of the church worship. I mean, they were, they were involved in all kinds of crazy stuff. So he was dealing with their, with their idols, but he's also dealing with our idols in our lives. And the overriding principle that Paul really wants his readers to understand is that everything we do, it has to glorify God. Paul's saying that because everything starts with Christ, Because we are in him and we find what we are living for is also in him. Then it all points to the glory of God. The problem with the Corinthian church and often our problem is that we think it all starts with us. Everything revolves around me. Why aren't you meeting my needs? 
Why aren't you looking after me? How come you guys are all paying attention to that person and not me? And it all becomes all about me and my stuff. And we give narrow thought to what God's purpose is for our life and that we start with God in that process. The problem the Corinthian church had is that they were trying to find glory and honor of God in other places that revolved around them. So let's pick it up. We're in chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 23 and 24 to begin with. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I want you to take a look at those first four words there because they're in quotation marks. It's in the Bible that way because what has happened is a lot of people come up and they look at this and they read, oh, Paul is saying that all things are lawful. No, that is not what Paul is saying. So don't misread this. And part of the problem is is that we we don't do enough homework to find out exactly what's going on with this letter. And what had happened is that the church in Corinth wrote a letter to Paul with a bunch of questions that they were asking him, and they drew some false conclusions about their relationship with Christ. And one of the false conclusions that they drew was this right here, that all things are lawful. That's what they said to Paul. They said, because of our freedom in Christ, now all things happen to be lawful for us. And and Paul's going like, no, not all things are lawful. It is not lawful to steal your neighbor's wife or to cover his property. It's not lawful to steal at all. It's not lawful to commit sexual immorality. It is not lawful to commit murder. There are a whole bunch of things that it is not lawful to do. But the church's problem is that They were thinking that in this new freedom in Christ, that all things were lawful for them. That meant that they could do whatever they wanted to do with no regard to about the rest of the church and how that would have an effect on the rest of the church. Paul's saying, your actions affect the people that you worship with. I'm saying, your actions affect the rest of us when we worship. The way you behave, the things you say, the things that you do, all under the the umbrella of freedom in Christ can have a negative effect. And that's Paul's point that he's really trying to get at here. He doesn't want us to be caught up in thinking that we can do whatever we want because we can't. You've heard me say this before. Our U.S. Constitution allows for freedom of speech. And boy, howdy, have we been hearing about it, right? But when you step into God's family, into God's kingdom, the Constitution takes a back seat to God's word. And so there is no freedom of speech in God's kingdom. You can't say whatever you want to say because you're an American and you have freedom of speech. You are now in a different kingdom. It's not a democracy. It's a theocracy. There is one God and he rules over all of it. And so when you go up and you start to go like, well, I'm an American. I can say whatever I darn well please. You better be careful because God measures every word that we say. He knows the intent of our heart. He knows when we rise in the morning. And when we sleep at night, he knows when we go to the highest heights and we go to the lowest depths, wherever we go, we cannot get away from the presence of God. God's presence is always there with us. And he wants us to reflect his glory in that. 
So we do need to be careful about what we say. It, look at verse 24. It says, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. This is a biblical truth that seems to be so elusive to Christ followers. Not all of all Christ followers are this way. And I'm not painting everybody with one broad stroke. But it just is kind of to me like I can't believe it. Because in the, it's the same issue they had in the first century church. And it's still an issue we have today. We seem to think that our own good is what matters most. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Because if you go back to when Jesus was asked, what's the two greatest commandments? We all know those is to love God with all your being. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Nowhere in there is it all about your own good. It's all about God and it's about others. And so we get, we kind of buy into a philosophy that this is all about me. And, and because whether your neighbor is your spouse or the guy across the street or the person behind you right here in church, you are supposed to seek their good, not your own. We are so self-absorbed that we want what we want is what we deem to be best for ourselves. It's all best for me. This, well, it's not good for me. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be a part of that because what's in it for me? I don't want to participate. I don't, I don't because it's not about me, 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 me. What am I going to get out of this? Jesus said this in Matthew. He said, for whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I really like the way the message says it, because here's what it says in the message. It says, anyone who tends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself, your true self. What kind of a deal is it to get everything you want but lose yourself? What could you ever trade your soul for? You see, the, the whole thing, if you, if you just even take moments in your day to think about what was the purpose of Christ's coming. We want to say he came to die for me, die for my sins. That's the secondary reason. The primary reason is that he came to glorify his father. He came for the glory of God. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But when we start with Jesus, then we'll find greater joy in looking after those people that God has placed into our world. God, nobody's in your world by accident. You know that person that irritates you the most? That person is not in your life by accident. And so if you're praying to God, please take them out of my life, stop it. You need to start praying, God, why are they in my life? What am I to learn from them? What ugly, sharp, nasty edge are you trying to rub off by having that person in my life? No one's exempt. We all have them. I have them. You have them. And what God is telling us is that he wants us to step up and to enjoy the freedom that he's given to us through Christ and to and to do what is best for our neighbor. The problem with the Corinthians church was that they really didn't care about other people at all. They wanted to enjoy their so-called freedom and participate in activities that were detrimental to the rest of the body, especially those 
weaker brothers and sisters. Their exercise of freedom was neither helpful nor for building up those who were new to faith. The, the major issue had to do with the eating of meat that had been offered to sacrifice as a sacrifice to idols, which would have given the impression to the, the newer people in faith that you can do this, it's okay, and so you can eat this mean meat, and they'll draw the conclusion that you can also go and participate in the idol worship, the sacrifice. Because they're so new to faith that what, what was going on is they were, they were participating in this because they have this freedom in Christ, and they knew that this meat meant nothing but to a weaker brother or sister. It was pushing them in the wrong direction. So let's pick up verses 25 through 30. Eat what is ever sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat what is ever set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but, the, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of, what, of that for which I gave thanks? All right. First thing we really want to take a look at is what Paul says right there at the beginning. Because he, what he does is he quotes from Psalm 24.1, and it says, For the for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, what Paul is telling these people is that it, back at the beginning when God created everything, after God created, he would say the words, it is good. Everything he created, he said, it is good. It is good. Meat, well, if you lived in Wyoming, you would say it is very good. Unless you're a bad shot and then you eat a lot of vegetables. But God created these things, and, and, and what he's saying, that, that the, the meat itself is not wicked or evil. It's the intent behind it. And so if, if you're going to someone's house for dinner and they offer you meat, you, you don't need to ask where the meat came from because you've been invited into a non-believer's house to have a meal with them, and it's that avenue that God is giving you to step into their home. And so if the meat's laid before you, don't ask if it's been offered to a sacrifice. Eat the meat. Give thanks to God for it. Eat the meat and enjoy the meat because that's what God has done for you. God has provided this place for you to go. But if there are other believers who are questioning the meal and what is being served for their conscience and to help them not to fall into sin refrain from eating the meat because it's still honoring to God and it's still loving your neighbor and it is still caring for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul's message is. Now, in these verses, particularly 27 through 30, Paul provides three different kind of ideas how people were approaching God in this Corinthian church. And it wasn't just God, it was the approach of their neighbor. And the, and the first is the... Um, legalistic attempt to glorify God without loving your neighbor. It says, if any of the unbelievers invite you in, uh, to dinner and you're disposed go to go, 
eat what is ever set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. In this view, this, this first view we're talking about, loving your neighbor is necessary, isn't necessary, but it could be a nice accessory or an add-on to one's devotion to God. God doesn't actually get the glory in this setting because it is diverted from God to the person, the legalist. The approach would be either uh, robbing God of his glory by ignoring his desire or choosing our own desire for self-directed spirituality over God's desire. You see, I'm going to refrain from eating the meat because I'm very spiritual. And you who are with me are less spiritual. The, the, um, a typical legalist is invited to a home of an unbeliever. Let's, it's, this is what I want you to consider. And the unbelieving neighbor offers meat, which could have been a sacrifice, but it was really a delicacy because you didn't eat meat every day. Now, the legalist individual is thinking, was this meat offered up to those pagan gods? And rather than simply receiving the offering and giving thanks to God, the legalistic individual hesitates and ultimately refuses the offer. This is not being a good neighbor. This legalistic individual doing good to a neighbor is an accessory, not a necessity. They go for what they can get out of it. And Paul wants to steer people away from being privatized moral conformists because they would end up being imperialistic and rigid. But on the other hand, libertarian individual was attempting to love his neighbor without glorifying God. Here's what it says. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Paul's addressing those who are more concerned about their own freedom than the good of their neighbor. Paul does not negate liberty found in Christ, but calls on the believer to give it up for the sake of his brothers. The Corinthians were attempting to love their neighbor without directing the act toward the ultimate source of love, God. And in this view, loving one's neighbor is necessary, but it is an end to itself. Self gets the glory because it is reflected back. It's robbing God of his glory by a variant of this approach and is manifested in apathy towards both God and the neighbor. Why'd they go? Because the meat is a delicacy. You don't eat it every day. And so they go to the dinner party for the meat. Not for the neighbor, not for the glory of God, just for what's being served. Um, There's a a modern day thing that is correlating with this, and I want you to understand it. The libertarian individual is sectarian against the legalist who wants to restrict his or her rights. And so they become this, this person that we know very well in our modern day. And in modern day, it's called toleration. And toleration can become 
intolerant toward the intolerant, namely the legalists. Progressive individuals think religious people are intolerant, so they end up becoming intolerant towards them. The particular modern individual may be saying, I can be open-minded and recognize the rights of everyone else, but not the religious person. Modern-day tolerance can be self-negating and inconsistent. That's what we have. You're the recipients of that. But now there's a third way, another approach to this, and it's the it's Paul saying this is the approach you should take, and it is namely a gospel-centered approach. This Pauline approach loves one's neighbor in order to glorify God. That's why we love our neighbor, not for, for what they're going to do for me or what they're going to bring to me or what I'm going to get from them, but for the glory of God. And the love of neighbor is meant in the glorifying of God who loved us first. And in this view, loving one's neighbor is necessary, but it's not an end to itself. The glory of God is the end to which all means are directed. God gets the glory because he receives it by the means for which he was asked to receive it. We must approach others because it is necessary but not sufficient. We must love others because it's necessary but not exclusive. There are other ways and means of glorifying God other than through our neighbors, and it is by including spiritual disciplines, just to name one. The problem is is that we're not all that interested in loving our neighbors. That's a problem. We wonder, what's in it for me? When loving our neighbor is about what we do or what we get out of it, we're not really loving our neighbors. We're simply using our neighbors. We are not ultimately interested in giving glory to God. We're really not. We end up becoming glory thieves. Even when we can objectively acknowledge that God is the supreme being who is ultimately worthy of all glory, we're still looking for a piece of the glory for ourselves. Let's move on to what Paul says in verses 31 through 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Paul's saying that because of what Jesus has done for us, we no longer seek our own advantage in anything for ourselves. We can let the advantage that we have go by the wayside so that others will see Jesus in us. And by seeing Jesus in us, then all of a sudden, they, hopefully, as the Spirit of God is working with you, they become aware of their need of a Savior. Because that's really what they need. Look at verse 31. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You want to know what the beginning of your life's purpose is on this earth? That's it right there. That's the beginning stage. It starts with God. But it starts with who gets the glory. It's either going to be you or it's going to be God. And so what, what, what do you want out of life? Do you want to uh, amass a bunch of stuff for your glory and for your honor? Or do you want to glorify God? In everything you do, glorify God. So what does that look like? I mean, what's the reality of that? How does it really look in our lives? It's, it's by the way that you live your life with your spouse. 
the way you talk to your spouse, the way you treat your spouse, the things you think about your spouse, if it's not glorifying God, then it's for yourself. It's in the way that you respond to your children. It's the way that you go to work with your day. It's the way that you you take the resources that God has given to you and you're using them. It's the way that you present yourself in your activities around other people. All of those different avenues are to glorify God in everything that we do. Everything that we do. So whose glory is it? Is it for your glory? Or is it for the glory of God? Now listen, I'm surprised at how easily it is for me to talk with my wife, deal with the issues and situations at my office, have thoughts, and generally go through my day without ever giving a second thought to how my actions would bring glory to God. Do you know what that is? That's called a confession of sin. And I just confess to all of you in one big confessional booth. All right? And here's the deal. I I understand my own heart. I understand when it comes to me in every action, every thought, everything I do needs to bring glory to God because that's exactly what Paul just says right here. That everything, it, it doesn't eliminate anything. There are no exceptions to the rules. What I do with my free time is to bring glory to God. What I take in through my eye gates is supposed to bring glory to God. What I put in through my ear gate is supposed to bring glory to God. What comes out of my mouth is supposed to bring glory to God. The thought process I have is supposed to bring glory to God. And yet, I know in my own life that there are days I go through my whole day and I'm, I haven't given one thought to how my life is glorifying to God. And here's the deal. I don't think I'm alone. I think if there's one in the room like that, there's a bunch of the rest of you who are like that. Now, I want everybody to rate... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But if that's the problem, if that's the issue, and by the way, don't put me on a pedestal. The only reason I'm standing up here um, speaking to you is because I'm short and you wouldn't be able to see me if I stood down there. So this isn't a pedestal. It's like platform shoes. <laughs> if you think you're to model your life after my life, you're mistaken. Because I am a guy in need of a Savior every day. I'm a guy that needs to know God's grace and forgiveness every day. I'm a guy who messes up but I know the one who has redeemed my soul. So don't look to me. I'll help you. I'll point you in the right direction because the guy's name is Jesus. It's not about me. And that's exactly what Paul says because we're going into now chapter 11, verse 1. Don't get too excited. We're not going all the way through chapter 11 today. Just the first verse. And you'll see it's not that long. Paul says, here's the remedy for our situation on glorifying God. Paul says this. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Understand the culture of the Corinthian church. Idol-worshiping heathens that have now stepped into faith with Christ. You go down to the local temple and you see the idol. 
You can even walk up and put your hand on that idol and you can touch that idol and you can offer all kinds of stuff to the idol. There is a visible and, and uh, a physical connection to that idol. But when you step into faith with Christ, all of a sudden now, you are not dealing with something you can see. You can't physically put your hands on Jesus. And that's why Jesus sent the Holy Spirit because he came to teach us, to guide us, to encourage us, to comfort us to rebuke us, convict us of sin, and to help us to live a life that glorifies God. That's the difference. We have a living God. Those are just wood and stone and made of of man's hands. But now we have this whole thing. And so what Paul's Paul's saying to the church is, is is that you guys may not be very far along in your journey with Christ, and you need someone who's going to help you along in this journey of Christ So as I imitate God, as I imitate Jesus, you imitate me. Paul's not telling him to imitate bad behavior that he has because Paul had bad behavior. Paul's not telling him to imitate the sinful things that he does because Paul did sin. What he's saying is, as I imitate Jesus, then you imitate me. Now, the other reason why Paul says, I want you to imitate me as I I imitate Christ is because this Corinthian church didn't have the advantage that we have. They didn't have the Gospels. They couldn't sit down in their home and open up the the New Testament and start reading about what Jesus did, what he said, how he acted with people, how he portrayed himself to others. You, in the first Corinthian, in the uh, Corinthian church, they had no way of being able to understand what Jesus did because they couldn't read about it. They had to hear it and they had to see it. And that's why more is caught than taught. If if you're going to claim to be a Christ follower, if you're going to do what Jesus has called you to do, and by the way, we've got a leg up on on all those first century churches. Matter of fact, we probably got a, a leg up on the first probably 18 centuries of Christ followers. Because Bibles weren't very available to people to pick up and read. You didn't have one in your home. Okay, I'm going to ask for a raise of hands here. How many of you have more than one Bible? Put your hand up. Just keep your hands up. Take a look around. Look around. In the 1800s, nobody put their hand up because the Bible was chained to the pulpit. You wanted to read it? Go to church and read the Bible. You didn't have one at home. And so we have this leg up of really understanding and knowing what what Jesus did and what he said and how he lived his life. And he's calling us, Paul is calling us to imitate Christ. That's what we are called to do. And how did Jesus live his life? What did he do? Well, one of my favorite passages about Jesus is in his prayer in John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, here's what Jesus said. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. You see what Jesus came to do? It's right there. It's out of Jesus' very own mouth. He said, I've come to glorify you through the work that you've given to me to accomplish. What did Jesus accomplish? He revealed to everybody that God's interested in having a personal, intimate 
relationship. That's what he's calling us to. That's what, what we're supposed to do. And so to imitate Jesus means that we have this intimate relationship with, with God. And in that, we glorify God. God is most... This is John Piper. This isn't Ken. So if you think I'm smart because I said it, it's because I memorized it. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. You want to know what your life's purpose is? Start to glorify God. When you start to think about what you're going to do in your day, God, help me to glorify you in my words, in my actions, in my deeds, the way I present myself. Help me to glorify you. As you're about ready to say something to somebody who has just chewed you out for the 15th time, before that word comes out of your mouth, you say, let these words be glorifying to you. When you are in conflict, it's the way that you present yourself, the words that you use, the, the mannerisms that you have, keeping, letting the Spirit of God control your life that you glorify God. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're supposed to do if we're going to imitate Jesus. Now, Jesus lived his life perfectly, avoiding the trap of legalism and avoiding the trap of liberalism. He never attempted to use his neighbors to gain glory for himself. He loved his neighbors perfectly and he loved his enemies perfectly. To imitate Jesus means that we learn from him and we love our neighbors for the glory of God because Jesus loved us and we were his enemies. And he did it for the glory of the Father. We can be disadvantaged in our freedom in Christ for others because Jesus was ultimately disadvantaged for us. Jesus gave us the other-centered, self-given example of what we are supposed to look like. We live our lives not for myself, but for the other people. I live my wife, life for my wife. I, just, I got her last night. That's my wife. I mean, you know, don't confuse her with some other woman. Last night, we were, uh, we were getting ready. We finished eating dinner, and, and there was a few things she had to clean up. And she said to me, would you mind doing the dishes? And I said, absolutely not. I am here to serve you. <laughs> now, as corny as that sounds, that's the truth. I put her needs ahead of my needs. How can I help you? I got my neighbor in trouble yesterday. I was talking with him and his wife. And we were looking at a calendar, and he says, oh, is that... Is that your church calendar? And I said, no. Nope. He goes, oh, that's your personal calendar. And I said, oh, no. This is the most important calendar. It's Lorinda's calendar. <laughs> After 33 years of marriage, I've learned to say yes, dear, as you please. And his wife elbowed him and said, you need to learn that lesson. <laughs> Serve other people. That's what we're called to do. How can we actively spend our lives giving instead of taking? Going to the back instead of trying to get to the front. Sacrificing ourselves for others instead of sacrificing others for ourselves. Every day we desire to hear the kind of verdict that declares us that we are good, competent, and worthy. 
So we walk around daily performing because we know that we're always on trial. Our lives are fixated on other people's responses. And Paul's solution to this insecurity is to know that the trial is over. There is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is immensely encouraging to know that because Christ has gone to trial for us, we are no longer on trial. As as a matter of fact, the court is adjourned. We are free to love our neighbors to the glory of God because Christ has set us free in, in trial. He paid our debt for us. We don't even have to go in the courtroom. And now we've got this newly motivated love and affection that has been steered by the beautiful picture of Jesus going to trial in our place and giving us all the advantages that he had. The advantage that we now have is that we can live a life of freedom that doesn't abuse our liberties and isn't tied down by law, but instead uses them for the glory of God by loving our neighbors. Today, this very day when you walk out of the door, your neighbor is the person that you bump into. Whether you know them or not, they're your neighbor. And Jesus is calling us to express his uh, his love to our neighbor. Today when you go home and you're milling around the house with your spouse, you put their needs ahead of your needs. If you have children, you care for your children in a godly way. When you go to work tomorrow, you walk in that door side by side with Jesus because you're saying, This place is the place where I am going to glorify God by the way that I work. When your employees walk into your place of business and you see them, you glorify God by the way that you uh, greet those people, by the way that you love those people, by the way that you help those people. Everything we do is for the glory of God. And what we need to do is we need to reflect on Jesus' radical, restoring love and share it with others. Amen? I'm going to quickly kind of go through our reflective questions for you to take home to use in your small groups. What freedom do I enjoy that could cause someone to fall back into sin? How can I manage my freedom without being offensive to others? How do I demonstrate my love for my neighbors so that God is glorified? What do I do for others that is ultimately self-serving? If glorifying God is your life purpose, how do you bring glory to God in your relationship with your spouse, your children, your church family, your job, and your activities? Now, the great news is that as we... (laughs) think about the freedom that we have, we get to celebrate that freedom this morning. Because now we're going to come to the Lord's table. And it was that, that work that Jesus did on the cross that brought us freedom to serve and come around this table. It's what Jesus did for us. And I'm going to read to you what Paul says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'm just going to say this. The way we come to this table and we partake in it is because we have that relationship with Jesus. We recognize that he became disadvantaged for our advantage. He went to trial on our behalf. And we took hold of the verdict that made him guilty and set us free. We step into freedom in Christ. That's what what we're called to do. That's how you become a part of God's family. And so this morning, if you have done that, then we do this to remember what Christ did for us. We celebrate it. We celebrate the trial. We celebrate it. If you have not done that, you should not partake of communion because you'll be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. It says to, to examine yourself before you come to the table. And so as, as the worship team makes their way up to the front and as the men who are going to help serve communion are coming up, I want you just to be quiet where you're at. I want you to examine yourself. I want you to take a look at your heart. Am I glorifying myself or am I glorifying the Father? Are the things that I'm doing, are these things for the glory of God or are they for my own benefit? Am I self-serving or am I serving others? And then ask God to come and cleanse your heart so you can come around the table and embrace the celebration of Jesus.